There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines, a podcast by Backpage that tells the stories behind great sports writing. My name's Neil White. I hope this finds you well. Today's guest is Matt Spiro, an English football writer, broadcaster and commentator who's lived in France for the past 18 years. Matt has used that experience, access and perspective to write Sacre Bleu, from Zidane to Mbappe, A Football Journey. It's a book that tells the story of the modern history of the French national team from one World Cup win in 1998 to another 20 years later. But that simple description does the book a disservice because the story of this team is complex and broad. The personalities that shape it are colossal. Zinedine Zidane, Gérard Houllier, Didier Deschamps, Raymond Domenech, Patrick Vieira, Thierry Henry, and Kylian Mbappe. Mbappe's story runs right through this book. Spiro follows his development from the Parisian suburb of Bondi to his blistering emergence at Monaco, and then onto Paris Saint-Germain and the 2018 World Cup. There are also detailed accounts of the great successes of the French national team and the numerous scandals that bridged their two World Cup wins. Spiro also analyzes the decline in the power of Ligue 1 from a regular competitor at European finals to its place today as the leading global exporter of footballers. But I was speaking to Spiro at a particular moment in time, at the peak of the global protests against police brutality and systemic racism that followed the murder of George Floyd in the United States. In Les Banlieues, the sprawling suburbs around Paris, these protests were fierce, and Mbappe used his platform as a product of Bondi to speak out against injustice. Mbappe was only six during the riots of 2005, when those same streets burned for weeks after two young men were killed while running from police. Race is a huge part of this story, whether it's the internal relations of the national team, the attitude towards it from the media and the wider population, or Les Banlieues, the football hotbed that feeds the National Academy system. Spiro never shies away from that in the book, and it's the first thing I wanted to ask him about when we spoke. There is this divide that is almost sort of accepted that, um, you know, the, the, the people living out in the suburbs have, have a hard time of it. And it is essentially, you know, we're talking about immigrant communities and um, they're very much on the periphery of, of, of French life. It is difficult for, for people from different backgrounds, from, from North Africa um, and from West Africa in, in, in particular, to gain sort of social ascension and to gain positions of, uh, of responsibility, whether that's in the media or in, in, in politics, there are very few non-white faces. Football, because of the, the huge influence that um, immigration has on, on football and the huge sort of, you know, the positive influence, these wonderful footballers who have origins from, from so many different countries, it sort of automatically links the racial aspect of, of, of life in France with the French national team and the fact that the French, na French national team is, you know, the one sort of, uh, you know, visible 
face of France around the world and a source of, uh, of national pride when things are going well and national shame when things aren't going very well, you know, has meant that very much over the last 20 years, um, there has been this, this racial element following the French national team around. And of course, you know, the 98 victory was um, symbolised by Zinedine Zidane and, and he, he is an unbelievable symbol because he came from such, such humble, tough... Um, beginnings in, in, in Marseille. I mean, there, there, there's, there's a big difference between Mbappe and, uh, and, and Zidane. People sort of on the face of it look at Mbappe and think he's, you know, he's from this tough Paris suburb and he is from a tough Paris suburb, but he didn't have a tough childhood because he was actually um, from one of the few sort of middle-class families in Bondi, which is this suburb in uh, uh, north, uh, northeast of, uh, of, of, of Paris. And he had pretty much everything a uh, a young boy would want to growing up and was even quite privileged in that he went to a private school, had tennis lessons, swimming lessons, flute lessons, whereas Zinedine Zidane really didn't have much at all and was in this northern suburb of, of Marseille, which was very, very violent and very, very tough and lived, you know, he lived in very cramped conditions. But in both cases, there are these two sort of talismanic symbolic figures in 98 and, and of course, in 2018. I guess in 98, I mean, part of that story has always been this um, positive representation of the, of the French experience in that team. They call it Black Blanc Bleu, which refers to, and you're going to have to correct me on several occasions during this conversation in terms of pronunciation, but that refers to the racial makeup of that team. By the time Mbappe emerges, I think, I think maybe the picture is slightly different because the ethnic makeup of the team then is influenced so heavily by these suburbs outside of Paris. Can you talk a little bit about the, the links between those suburbs and Clairefontaine? Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there, there is a difference between the makeup of the 98 team and then the team sort of, you know, from, from 2006 onwards, insofar as 98 had a lot of um, players who have immigrant, who had immigrant backgrounds. Um, but like you say, they weren't necessarily all from um, sort of, you know, Paris suburbs or, or even Lyon suburbs. A lot of them were from, yeah, from really from all over the country, um, whether it be, you know, rural south, um, west. They, 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 they sort of came from everywhere. And, you know, there are reasons for this. And it's all linked to the, uh, to the massive influx of, uh, of immigrants post-Second World War, les 30 glorieuses, as it's called, 30 glorious years of, of, of economic boom, where the immigrants were welcomed and they were essentially labourers. The team, the more modern France teams, um, are second or third generation immigrants and are actually, I'm pleased to say, much more sort of recognised as, as, as French people. That, you know, that there's not so much the, the feeling that you had in 98, where a lot of people were saying look at our team they're from all these different countries and then when something negative happened Im immigration was getting blamed whereas in in in, in 2018 um, the 2018 team was very much considered French and some people outside of France said oh look it's Africa winning the World Cup and it was actually the French players like Benjamin Mendy and Paul Pogba who just said no listen this is modern France this is this is what it's like so I mean to answer your question a, a little bit more, yes, there are more and more footballers in these uh, suburbs. Clairefontaine started what was um, quite revolutionary at the time. It was Gérard Houllier who instigated it in, in 1990, um, what they called pre-formation or early 
early training centres where they would get hold of the kids sort of from the age of 11, 12 um, and have three years training them before they integrated and the academies of, of, of professional clubs. Um, and, you know, Julia explains to me in the book that his reasoning was that, uh, you know, a doctor needs six years of training, an engineer needs seven years or, or what have you. And if you want to have a footballer who's ready to play 50, 60 games a year by the age of 19, 20, well, he needs, you know, he needs seven years of, of, of training. And I think France were able to get ahead of the game Thanks in, 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 in many respects to that. It wasn't just the Academy at Clairefontaine. They had these nationwide academies, 13 of them dotted around the country. They influenced the, uh, the club game very heavily as well. So they produced a lot of footballers, a lot of footballers who, who turned professional. But the problem sort of started happening in, in, in the mid-noughties for a, a variety of reasons. Ligue 1 was in economic decline and the, the clubs in Ligue 1 saw this sort of uh, you know massive raw talent as a way to keep in good financial health so basically they would try and get hold of and develop young players in order to to sell them and very quickly you 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 saw that the young french player was you know it'd be wrong to say he was a he was a commodity but he had a value you know a, a talented guy at the age of 16 17 you know walking around the training ground people at the club know he's already worth 20 odd million and these players sort of became, in some uh, cases, more valuable than the actual clubs. And they could effectively behave how they wanted and not get, puni- not get any punishment. It was very difficult for the clubs to sort of instill any kind of discipline. There are quite a few scandals in the book, but one of them that sort of marked Claire Fontaine's history in a, in a very negative sense, which was the quota scandal, which erupted in 2010-2011, uh, in um, which is, you know, which again is quite a complex um, affair to, to get your head around. There was this, this high-level meeting between top coaches in France, um, Laurent Blanc among them, plus the FA, the French FA's technical director, and taken out of context, some of the comments sound extremely racist, and there was this, this notion of introducing a, a quota to reduce the number of dual-nationality children um, in, the, in the national academies at the age of 12, and um, that obviously, when it was leaked to the press, created um, huge uproar, and, um, and quite rightly, there was an investigation into it. A lot of people working in the French system were very frustrated that the players that they were investing in would end up playing for Algeria or Senegal, or in some cases, even Portugal. One of the coaches produced this uh, dossier where he said, the last 26 of our graduates to have, that have turned professional, 23 of them are playing for other nations, only three are playing for France. You know, this was a time where Les Bleus were really struggling and Spain were on top of the world. And I think it was a fact that um, France were missing out on a lot of their, their, their better, more talented young players because they weren't big enough at a, at, a, at a young age. Guys like Antoine Griezmann is probably the, you know, the best example who couldn't make it in France because the academies wanted big, strong players. And that's something that's you know, dated back to the 90s and particularly 98 when France were a very strong and powerful team. So the, the, the link was made by Blanc and by others to the fact that a lot of the 12-year-olds getting picked are getting picked because they're big and strong and a lot of them are black. And you know that, that, that's a link that that shouldn't have been made and was connected to the to the dual nationality uh, debate and there was talk of yeah re- restricting it to just 30% of the intake should be dual nationality kids and uh, it did a huge amount of damage to french football at a time when french football was already in a bad place 
So there's two things you mentioned there that I kind of want to go back on. One of the most interesting parts of the book for me was the discussion around the decline of Ligue 1 from this league that had multiple teams competing for European titles and sharing the domestic championship very quickly post-Bosman to be um, the primary exporter, basically, in, in European, if not world, football. You list the, the players that you, in your professional career, watched at a very young age coming through the, the French leagues. I think you include uh, Eden Hazard, Karim Benzema um, and Raphael Varane. And you go on to make this point that teenagers in Ligue 1 play over two times the amount of minutes compared to players of the equivalent age in the other big four leagues, apart from England, where the French player has a 3x advantage. So you, you see this complete sort of transformation of, of France from a, being a competitor to being an exporter. You just described there the, um, the added status that that gives the young player who hasn't really achieved anything. So that leads to this key change, which is that attitude of those young players. And that gets conflated with race at some point. People start to think that guys like Nasri and Ben Arfa are bad influences around the national team, it seems to me. And that gets conflated with some kind of you know, racist element within the society or the media or, or the people discussing this image, when really it comes from these economic factors that have affected the sort of nature of French domestic football. I don't want to make it sound overcomplicated, but it was really, it was something to think about. No, it's interesting. I, there are obviously a lot of preconceived ideas and uh, you, you talk about Nasri and, and Ben Arfa often, often getting the blame. And I, I, I mention it in the book that they, they, they are quite often their names get dragged into into discussions about about the 2010 World Cup debacle because it just seems to be you know these these spoilt brats sitting on on the bus going on strike and everybody just associates it with Benzema, Ben Arfa, and Nasri and those three didn't go to the World Cup and they <laughs> you know and they, they they you know they they quite often sort of make ironic comments about it because um, it just feels like it's yeah it's easy to talk about these supposedly you know spoil kids but I mean somebody like Benzema has this sort of surly demeanor he, he loves to show off his, his his watches and his cars on Instagram and I think a lot of people in sort of white middle class France and I, I, I don't want to generalize because there's plenty of people in white middle class France who love Benzema for the footballer he is but I think a lot of them a lot of people look at him as you know as kind of a badly behaved sort of badly brought up guy who they would perhaps link to badly behaved people in the suburbs but then you have to look at the the way these guys are regarded in the suburbs of France and they're absolute heroes and um you know no certainly nobody you know sees sees Karim Benzema or or even you know in the Marseille suburbs Samir Nasri that it wouldn't be seen as a sort of badly behaved spoiled brat he'd be seen as a sign of of incredible success and and everybody's fiercely proud of them and um you know, even golden boy Mbappe in the last year or so has been accused of uh, of getting a bit big-headed. But when you're in Bondi and when you talk to people there, um, they obviously love him. They're obviously incredibly proud of him. But for people in Bondi, it's it's the rest of France that doesn't understand the mentality of, of, of kids from the suburbs. Did you always intend to take a trip out to to the suburbs? And was it just to walk sort of Mbappe streets? It strikes me that 
these neighborhoods play such a huge part in the development, specifically of the current French national team, that I, as soon as you started to tell that story, I was desperate to sort of feel the atmosphere in the streets to kind of get a sense of what, what it was you'd started to write about. And then when you actually go there and, and you're meeting the people there and you're describing the neighborhoods and you're even sort of speaking to local politicians, it completely brings it to life. So did you always know that that was a trip you were going to have to make? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I feel... Well, I guess an author's never... <laughs> it's my first book, but I guess an author's never completely sort of satisfied. could always think he could do more research or more interviews and... I would have liked to spend to spend more time out there. Um, I spent time at the football club. I managed to interview the, the mayor of Bondi as well, who is a friend of Kylian Mbappe's parents and is a really sort of a ferocious sort of politician who defends ferociously sort of her, her, her suburbs. And she got very upset when I talked about the 2005 riots. And she said, no, sir, you know, we don't call them riots here. They were a, a social revolt, she, she called it. And, you know, they were, they were, for me, probably the most interesting and most enjoyable parts of researching the book, going, going to Bondi. I mean, I've spent some time, I did, I, in 2016, I spent some time in Les Ulysses, which is a, a suburb south of Paris, which has produced some, you know, a few average footballers like Thierry Henry, uh, Anthony Martial, Patrice Evra, uh, you know, all Never three of them. Can, no. <laughs> um, so absolutely incredible. And I, I watched some Euro 2016 games when... Um, Evra and Martial were were playing with you know with their mates and stuff and and, and it's just absolutely you know ab- ab- absolutely fascinating and it's probably well it certainly isn't an accurate sort of uh, idea of what life everyday life is like in Bondi or in Les Ulysses. Um Likewise, Bondi. I went the day that Mbappe returned to celebrate the World Cup victory, and it was just such a such a such a wonderful and you know I found quite sort of touching and emotional occasion. Um, but you see people in Paris or people outside of these these suburbs they kind of think the opposite they think that everyday life in Bondi is kind of you know keeping your head down trying to avoid um, I don't know shootings or drug raids or police you know and actually you know life is very very normal I, I spoke to this journalist who was fascinating Ilias Ramdani who works for the Bondi blog which is a um, yeah, a website that reports on, on on life in the suburbs, and he, you know, his he describes it as you know we try to describe what life is like in the suburbs or report on life in the suburbs when cars aren't being burnt and when Mbappe is not winning the World Cup because you know that's kind of i.e. ninety nine percent of the time. <laughs> but yeah, I, I you know in Bondi, I just I, I said to you Neil, I, I've lived here for eighteen years and I've so rarely been to the suburbs you know apart from going to the Stade de France to watch France or to see cup finals apart from going to the PSG training ground which is in a very it's a very sort of posh suburb in, in in the west of Paris you just don't really go there and um, that's what that you know that is what is so particular about about life in France so you go there with this sort of yeah wariness because that's what's been ingrained in you um, and 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 you arrive and there's yeah there, there there is much more of a warm sort of community sense there because I think people have to be sort of closer and look after each other and there's not the coldness that that you feel in Paris. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. One of the other aspects of process I wanted to talk about was the fantastic primary source interviews that you get. You've already mentioned Gerard Ullier, who comes across as a, a real sort of totemic figure in this story because he's there at the start of Clairefontaine when it's building up to 98. And then when Jacquet, the coach of that World Cup winning team, then becomes his technical director, I can't remember who describes him as the worst technical director ever, um, but but he, he really is kind of like a, a key point in the decline thereafter. Ulier comes back and suddenly everything's, everything's better again. And you mentioned speaking to him specifically about this uh, perceived problem of Clairefontaine producing players for other national teams. And he kind of starts to address that himself, but then he corrects himself and says, but I don't think I'd regret losing any of the guys that go to play for other... You know, it, the point that he was making is the very, very best do tend to stick with France. I mean, how, how important a figure is Ulier in all of this? And what was it like speaking to him about it firsthand? What was, what was he like kind of talking about his role in all this historically? Yeah, Julier, I've, you know, I've had dealings with him in the past and you, I've got a, plenty of respect for him. I think he, he does blow hot and cold. If you get him at the wrong time or ask him the wrong question, he can be pretty you know, withering and um, tell you where to go. But I was quite pleasantly surprised at how open he was when he heard that I wanted to, to talk to him about everything that he put in place because he was instrumental back in, back in 1988 when Claire Fontaine was originally opened. He'd already had some success as PSG manager winning the league with them. He was actually very keen and very proud. He, he, he's a little bit you know, scholarly. You know, we know he used to be a school teacher and he um, invited me into his office and he prepared uh, a whiteboard and he had these bits of paper and he wanted to make sure that I understood the process very well so he was drawing diagrams for me um, and you know it's something that he's incredibly proud of he he's not shy in taking credit for things it's, I mean you know there, there, are, there, there are a few comments like you know I always say that the technical director's job is to is to build a team for 10 years time and uh, as if by magic 10 years after I arrived we won the World Cup <laughs> Yeah, and when things go wrong, he's yeah quite quite good at sort of explaining whose fault it was other than his. But um, <laughs> you know, he 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 came back in two thousand. I, I think what's interesting with Julier is he's well known, very well known for what he did at Liverpool um, around the world. But he actually, you know, he he's far more important than people realise in France, and not just because he won leagues with with Lyon and. Uh, before that with, with, with PSG, but because he is seen as, as somebody who really does pull strings behind the scenes. And very often, the appointment of a France manager, the appointment of a Lyon manager, big decisions made in the federation, he'll be the guy applying the pressure or making the, you know, making the final call. So you know, politically, he's shrewd and he's, 
he's he's a very very important person in 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 French football. Like you say, I mean, he came back to Clairefontaine to take over from Jacques, as, you know, in this technical director role in 2007, and he recognised that there was a problem that the methods had become outdated. Um, he felt there was an obsession, not so much an obsession with technique. They wanted technique to be important, but the the Clairefontaine method was all about repeating drills over and over and over and over, so that controlling a football, making sure you know your your body shape is right depending on where you are on the pitch when you collect the ball that it, that they made sure all of that just became natural and second nature to these to these football players and there was this sense that in 2007 they they were sort of creating not robots but you know very kind of well drilled technical footballers but footballers who didn't really think for themselves on a football pitch so yeah Julia explains that he spent time watching methods and learning from what they were doing in Spain and it wasn't wholly positive, Julier's second spell. There, there, there was the old guard at Clairefontaine who had done such a wonderful job um, and he basically decided a revolution was, was, was needed. And, you know, I, spoken, I spoke to André Morel, who's given more than 30 years to Clairefontaine and uh, a Brazilian coach, Francisco Filho, as well. And, they're, you know, they're pretty bitter about the way that everything panned out and they didn't agree with... Or they felt that Julier was sort of looking for a scapegoat. Um, and, um, yeah, then once the quota scandal happened, you know, they these guys had already been pushed out and it was kind of not blamed on them, but they were kind of like the easy fall guys. I mean, there was a lot of bitterness, I would say, in, 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 in the system and a lot of people with, with some grudges against it, against Gerard after, after that sort of revolution that he led. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting part of the story is the different perspectives that you get often on the same part of the story. You know, you'll, you'll flip between between talkers. And Martin and I at Backpage have worked on a few books where you're trying to tell quite a broad story such as this. And the writer usually reports back and says, well, there was this one key interview that sort of changed the way I was thinking about it. Or this interview then led to this one. And I didn't realise I was going to end up speaking to this guy until I spoke to that guy. And I was just wondering, you know, were there any moments when you're meeting these primary sources where there were really sort of cornerstones in the development of the book which are the interviews that really moved you forward one guy who i think adds a a very sort of you know alternative view is is vikash doraso a very a very interesting guy and very different to, to your average footballer he's very down to earth he lives in a sort of quite a quite a trendy area uh, you know in 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 paris but he you know he likes to hang out in in the local bars near near montmartre and he you know very lovely social guy but he's always been a bit controversial and he's always sort of sought the the alternative view and i basically finished writing up all my sort of the, the parts on zidane and what an incredible player he was and then how he came back and saved france and uh doris doriso was brilliant in terms of giving the alternative view there because he was actually the guy who was the playmaker in the France team under Dominic. And he was probably the one person in France who was actually pretty pissed off that Zidane Zidane was coming out of retirement. And he says to me, yeah, he says, look, Zidane is just untouchable in France, so I couldn't say anything, but this guy decided to leave us. He decided to retire. Um, We had to build a team from scratch. He then decides that actually he wants to come back. So a year later, he comes back. Everybody seems to think that's brilliant, which suggests to me that Zidane just does what he wants. He has a, a rule, rule of his own, laws of his own. And um, I just had to shut up. And it was quite difficult because he was coming in to basically take my place. And actually, we hadn't lost a game for a year. And um, yeah, it was just a very sort of very different view. And um, 
that yeah I, I, I found that pretty interesting to find somebody who's prepared to speak out against Zidane and not only Zidane but um, when Doriso first broke into the uh, into the France squad in uh, in '99, I think it was uh, soon after they'd they'd won the World Cup, he found it very very difficult to be accepted. And there's this quite interesting sort of uh, legend in, in in French 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 football that he um, decided to nutmeg Didier Deschamps in training, and that it went down very very badly, um, and that Deschamps subsequently sort of uh, mispronounced his name on on, on the bus and uh, suddenly Doriso was was never called up again now there's no evidence to suggest that there was a sort of Deschamps lobbying to 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 leave him out but uh, Doriso was quite funny sort of talking about that um, but you know it took him five years to get back into the into the France team so it sort of you know it shows the the, the power that the 98 team had as well. I'm sure they had a, an, an incredible aura, and that's one of the reasons, actually, that when the Nasri's and Benzema's came in, and were not prepared at all to sort of, you know, bow down to their elders, you know, the Thierry Henrys or Patrick Vieira's, um, it caused quite a bit of friction in, in in the camp. It was the sort of new generation. Nasri is, you know, the, the example we often use, but you know, he always says, "Listen, I, I didn't feel like I was inferior to anybody or had to prove myself to anybody." We were all in the squad. We were all equal. If I wanted to sit in Thierry Henry's seat, then, then, then I will. And that was something that the Lilian Thurams and that generation found it very, very hard to, to, to fathom and understand. Yeah. You mentioned Dorisu, and that raises another aspect of the production of this book, which is the wealth of secondary sources that you seem to have at your disposal, because he himself is uh, shooting sort of camcorder footage during one of these tournaments that then becomes a sort of makeshift documentary. There's Dominic's book, which sounds absolutely fantastic and makes me want to read it, the, the passages that you include. There's numerous documentary films, sometimes about individual players. It seems that Nasri has a documentary made about him and definitely, definitely Benzema as well. Is there, what would you, how would you describe the difference between that kind of long form coverage of these big personalities and big events in French football maybe compared to compared to the football back home here in the UK yeah it's a whole soap opera uh, French football everywhere <laughs> but you're right there is there is a lot and I, I think I do mention it at some point in the book I think there, there's more of an adult relationship I feel between French footballers and the media and I I, it's something that really struck me when I first moved over to France that they all, all the senior, not not just senior players, all the players, they had relationships with journalists. They had certain journalists that they would speak to quite openly. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't problems and you've probably noticed in the book there's quite a you know, a running theme as well of players who are, who are upset with with newspapers, in particular L'Equipe, because they've got so much power over here and Nasri had a sort of ongoing battle with L'Equipe. Um, Karim Benzema's agent got in all sorts of uh, different fracas with, um, with L'Equipe journalists because of the, the, the bad press he was getting at the 2014 World Cup. I do feel like there's more, there's more openness and subsequently Asami Nasri has obviously got some you know, good friends, good contacts in the media and whether it was him or his people who sat down with them and said, listen, you're a bit misunderstood. It might be quite good to get, you know, to get this documentary out there. Karim Benzema's documentary was a huge, um, a huge production, um, but it was you know a little bit in the sort of Michael Jordan ilk insofar as um, he or his people were getting kind of the final say on who would, you know, who 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 would be allowed to say what in the documentary. Yeah, there 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 is a lot a lot out there, and a lot of it is is 
is fascinating um, and sort of yeah, adds a few layers of, of depth to the, the whole sort of backstory to French football, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there seemed to be a book on, or maybe even a couple of books on the questions of race around football. And then there was another book about generally the, the way that football is viewed sort of from polite society as well. Um, just finally, we'll wrap up with the other sort of vein that runs right the way through this book, which is sort of running development of the Mbappe story. Because Mbappe is kind of like the first of a new generation of footballer that's kind of like his entire career, almost his entire life, has uh, taken place in the, in the age of instant social media. How, did you learn anything new about him while you were diving deeper into his story? And yeah, how, how did you go about uncovering a new angle and new takes on his story? I knew it was going to be very hard if not impossible to to speak to him for the book um not only him but his his mother and his father because already you know they've been you know you talk about documentaries i think l'equipe's tv channel have done two already on mbappe um and they got pretty good access early on to his you know his his entourage um but there is um a lawyer who looks after his interests and it, it's basically been decided that the shop is now closed um and that they're working you know there may be i don't know there may be an mbappe autobiography coming out already i'm not sure but um there was that there was the the thought that i could fight very hard to try and get 20 minutes with killing mbappe and you know that would have been fantastic but speaking to to one or two people we also thought that it's a stage now where he is so i mean he's a very bright guy communications wise he's brilliant and there's kind of a feeling that it's going to be very difficult to get anything new or fresh out of him because he is so formatted now. But, uh, you know, of course, I wouldn't have refused an interview with Mbappe had I got it. So I'm not, you know, I'm not hiding behind that. But um, I was, yeah, so I was more kind of looking at people who could, um, who, yeah, who could tell me, could tell me more about Killian without sort of necessarily being in, it, in in his first circle. And I mean that, you know, the mayor of Bondi was a, was, was a great example. The, um, all the coaches at Bondi, and I've spoken to some players as well who, who played with him, um, or even someone, someone like Sebastian Corsia, who, who played for Bondi, I think, when he was 13 or 14, and Killian was six or seven, and already Killian was, like, going on all the away trips with them and was, you know, he, he was already a recognisable figure at, at the club. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it, you know, it was, it, it was a case of sort of how to draw as accurate a picture and as interesting a picture and true a picture of, uh, of Kylian Mbappe as possible, knowing that, you know, a lot has been said already over here in France. How could I add to that and how could I sort of bring a fresh angle or at least, you know, a personal side to how I've, how I've witnessed? You know, I mean, I've been lucky as well as a commentator. that I was commentating his first games and I, was in, I interviewed him when he was already scoring for Monaco in the, in the, in the Champions League. So I've witnessed his evolution from, you know, very close hand as well. So he's a fascinating, an absolutely fascinating character. And at the start of the conversation, you talked about George Lloyd and the the, the controversy, obviously in, in America at the moment. And Killian came out and has 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 tweeted and also put something on, on Instagram about it. And obviously that's had big big ramifications. Um, but it's also drawn criticism because a lot of people, you know, and it shows how, how important a figure he is now. A lot of people have said, well, hang on, we had a similar case. Now, I'm, I'm not getting into the details of whether it was similar or not, but four years ago, um, 
uh, a young uh, black man, Adama Traore, w- was killed after um, an incident with, uh, with the police. Um, and so people are saying, well, hang on, why were you not supporting this guy? You know, it happens in our country. Why are you just jumping on it because of America? So, you know, even when you're doing, you know, what is clearly the right thing and he's still getting criticism. But I think looking forward, it was Benjamin Mendy, his former teammate at Monaco, who calls him our, he, he said, uh, Killian is our little Obama. But you do feel like, you know, if he, if he moves to Real Madrid, if, or, you know, if his career continues to take off and he starts winning Ballon d'Ors and, and Champions League, then his, you know, his influence and the sort of symbolic nature of who he is and what he stands for is going to just gain even more importance. That's all for this episode of Between the Lines. Thank you to Matt Spiro. His book is Sacre Bleu, From Zidane to Mbappe, A Football Journey, and it's out now. Between the Lines is produced by Backpage. New episodes every Wednesday. If you enjoy this podcast, please think about helping us out a little bit by telling someone else who might like it or leaving a review somewhere. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.